0: Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, and you can find it at page 96 of the New Testament section of your Pew Bibles. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. He replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is the water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Katherine Schultz has spent several years exploring, exploring the experience of being wrong. In her TED Talk, she asks people what it feels like to be wrong. What does, what does it feel like to be wrong? Humiliating, embarrassing. I saw a thumbs down. Now, people responded to her with answers just like yours. And then Schultz tells them that they answered a different question. They answered the question, what does it feel like to realize you are wrong? Actually, she says, being wrong feels exactly like being right. It's only when we look down like the coyote in the coyote in Roadrunner cartoons after he's run off the cliff and we see our mistake that we feel dread or embarrassment. Until then, we just think we're right. But she says, that's what our whole lives look like. She noticed that all the stories on the radio show, This American Life, have the same theme. I thought this one thing was going to happen, and then this other thing happened. And that's because that's what life looks like. Life turns around and astonishes us. In this morning's passage from Acts, the Apostle Philip thought one thing was going to happen, and then this other thing happened. God, by way of an angel, has been sending Philip all over the place to convert folks. Here he's sent into the wilderness, and on the road he encounters the treasurer to the queen of Ethiopia. The man is a eunuch, surgically castrated. In many ancient cultures, eunuchs held sensitive positions in the court, positions requiring exceptional loyalty, such as manager of the king's harem, taster of the king's food, and overseer of the treasury as here. He's important. He's wealthy. This is the only place in the New Testament where someone is riding in a chariot. Luke, who wrote Acts, tells us that the man is returning from a trip to Jerusalem to worship. As an Ethiopian, a person of color, he was obviously not Jewish. He may have been what the Bible refers to as a God-fearer, which meant he believed in God and perhaps observed Jewish rituals, even though he wasn't a Jew. Sadly, in all likelihood, the religious establishment had turned him away at the temple, While there was a court of the Gentiles where non-Jews could worship at a distance, the fact that he was a eunuch would have put him outside of the worshiping community entirely. Eunuchs didn't fit into the strict category of male or of female, and this made them unclean and unacceptable according to the law. But the Ethiopian eunuch went to Jerusalem to worship in spite of all this. He sought God anyway. Maybe that's why he's studying this particular passage in Isaiah. The verses quoted are from a section of Isaiah known as the Suffering Servant, often read by Christians as a prophecy about Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch wouldn't have read it through this lens. He'd never even heard of Jesus. Maybe he's eager for guidance about what it means because he so strongly identifies with the character Isaiah is describing. He, too, has experienced humiliation, He too has been denied justice, as someone invited by God to the temple, but barred by the human gatekeepers. Perhaps he's asking, is this passage about people like him? If it is, does he have a place in the community that he so desperately wants to be a part of? Philip doesn't pause to consider. He jumps into the chariot and shares the good news of the kingdom of God, the message proclaimed by Jesus and shaped by the Jewish narratives of creation and liberation and reconciliation. It's the message embodied in Jesus, a man who was publicly humiliated, despised, denied justice, and misunderstood as well. Maybe Philip figured he'd tell the man the good news and somehow eventually the Ethiopian eunuch would become a little more something that Philip was comfortable with. For his whole lifetime, after all, Philip had been taught to be prejudiced against eunuchs and other sexually abnormal people. His parents taught him this, his teachers taught him this. We are to have nothing to do with eunuchs. We are not to talk to them or walk with them or eat with them or meet with them. The Ethiopian eunuch obvi- obviously feels that this good news relates powerfully to him personally, and so he points to the water by the road. What is to prevent me from being baptized? he asks. And so, in traditional evangelism terms, this is a conversion but several things occur to me in reading this story. This story is part of a larger thread in Acts. Earlier in this same chapter, Philip converts Samaritans, who were also despised and rejected. Other disciples in Acts bring the good news to the Gentiles, also outsiders. Some 20 years later, Philip's daughters are described in Acts as prophets and preachers. Women. Women are described as prophets and preachers. So the first thing that occurs to me with this story about the Ethiopian eunuch and this ever-widening circle of inclusion is, why did it take centuries, even millennia, for any part of the church to welcome LGBTQ folks? And why is it that many churches still don't? How can you read this and think the Church of Jesus Christ would exclude anybody who was sexually different. This is on top of the fact that we have many examples of Jesus crossing boundaries to include outcasts and sinners, and not a single example of Jesus crossing his arms and refusing to do so. Following Jesus' lead, the early Church just kept widening the circle. Why would anyone think the circle was supposed to grow only just so big, and then stop. But the story itself offers us the answer. When you think about it, who was converted here? Sure, Philip did the evangelizing, but who was changed? Philip thought one thing was going to happen, and then this other thing happened. He thought he was going to convert the Ethiopian eunuch, and he himself was converted. Think about all the walls that existed for Philip, the wall between Jews and Samaritans, the wall between sexually normal and sexually abnormal people, the wall between men and women. People had grown up with these walls firmly in place, but he changed. The encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch changed him. It turns out that the book of Acts is as much about the ongoing conversion of believers as it is about the conversion of unbelievers. Nadia boltz Weber tells a story about a member of her church, Stuart, a gay man, who was invited to stand as godparent at the baptism of the child of some friends. There was a little party after, uh, at the parents' home afterwards, and to Stuart's surprise, his friends called everyone's attention to explain why they'd chosen Stuart as their child's godparent. We chose you, Stuart, they said, because for most of your life, you have pursued Christ and Christ's church, even though as a gay man, all you've heard from the church is that there is no love for you here. In other words, Stuart had shown them what it means to be faithful what it looks like to believe. He'd helped them to believe again and again in the wideness of God's mercy and the love of Christ, and he helped them to see what God's church is meant to be. Boltz Weber writes, All that many of you have heard is that the tent is simply not big enough unless you change to fit in it. Change your sexuality, your personality, your doubting. Change your addictive patterns, your story, your brokenness, and if you can't, then just pretend. Yet here you are, converting me once again to this faith. Because how can I know what it means to follow Christ unless I learn it from someone who has done so despite every possible obstacle? We need this story of the eunuch, and we need all the strangers, all the others, people of different races, genders, sexuality, economic backgrounds, education levels, and degrees of doubt. We need the marginalized voices and the voices of those who have been hurt by religion. What I'm talking about here is far more than inclusion. Inclusion is a good thing, but that makes it sound as though it's about our big-heartedness, that we're allowing them to join us, as though it's an act of charity on our part, when the truth is that we need the equivalent of the Ethiopian eunuch to show us faith. We need the stranger, the foreigner, the other to show us water in the desert, We need to hear, here is the water in the desert, so what is to keep me from being baptized? Otherwise, we might start thinking that there's limited space under the tent, or that it's our job to make the tent bigger, when the thing is, it isn't our tent. It's God's tent. And we are the ones who need to be converted again and again. The movie, The Greatest Showman, is inspired by the rags-to-riches life and imagination of P.T. Barnum. What it lacks in historical accuracy, it makes up an exuberance. The performers that Barnum gathers for his show are people who have never fit in, people who have been shoved to the margins for their differences, people who are too tall or too small, too fat, too hairy, or too tattooed to be normal. Barnett makes money off these performers and seems to appreciate them, but at an elegant party where he's desperate to be accepted by the elites of society, he closes the door on them. The performers in the movie respond with the song, This Is Me, a powerful and rousing anthem for all those pushed to the edges or excluded because they don't fit the traditional categories. If we had our video up and running, I'd show it to you. But the bearded lady begins the song, singing, I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. But I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there is a place for us, for we are glorious. For we are glorious. It's an interesting choice of words in the lyrics, glorious. It has a spiritual ring to it, doesn't it? It sounds godly. It sounds holy because it is. Barnum's performers claim their God-given worthiness. The well-dressed party guests don't hand it to them. The performers point to the water. What is to keep us from being included? Barnum needs to hear these voices, and here's the thing. One of the reasons we all need to hear these voices is because This Is Me is everybody's song. We might be better able to fit in, but there isn't one of us who is perfect or without scars. On behalf of the trans community, Austin Hartke, a trans man and pastor, writes, When a church is trans-affirming, Transgender Christians can show up as themselves unapologetically. By doing that, they show everybody else in the congregation that it's all right to bring their whole selves into the community, that nobody has to fake it till you make it, as a perfect Christian. This kind of authenticity is especially important to younger people who often see the church as hypocritical and believe that being a church going Christian means you put on your fake smile alongside your Sunday suit. But once we tell our stories and let ourselves be seen, flaws and all, sins and all, full of beauty and sadness and fear and courage and joy, then we can be Christians who ask for forgiveness who walk humbly with God, and who love our neighbors as ourselves. But once we tell our stories and let ourselves be seen, flaws and all, sins and all, full of beauty and sadness and fear and courage and joy, then we can be Christians who ask for forgiveness, who walk humbly with God, and who love our neighbors as ourselves. Here is the water. Here is the water for each and for all of us. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.